Right? That's fun. Welcome to Two Girls in a Grape, where we attempt to learn about wine one bottle at a time. I'm Drea, and I don't acknowledge colonial fantasies. And I'm Anne, and I'm thinking about the ways that I can be a better ally and co-conspirator against white supremacy. I, I appreciate you acknowledging all those things. I was just like, no, no gracias. Um, so, I mean, already I can tell we're in for a real fun episode. I can't wait to get into it. Uh, and I feel like we're going to have a very special reoccurring segment of Cheers and Jeers this time around. Uh, so, everyone, in case you haven't noticed, this is our anti-Thanksgiving Thanksgiving episode. Uh, and frankly, I'm... We're thankful for each other and that we get to talk a bunch of shit on this podcast. So, Anne, what are your cheers and jeers that you are celebrating this episode? Well, I am really thankful that we are coming in hot already. I can so already hot. feel that both of us Fire. are a little amped up for this. Fire. Um, my cheers this episode is to American Indian Community House. This is a not-for-profit organization here in New York City that is dedicated to serving the needs of Native Americans uh, residing in New York City. Uh, H was founded in 1969 and has gone through many iterations over the years. Its mission is to improve and promote the well-being of the American Indian community and to increase the visibility of American Indian cultures in an urban setting in order to cultivate awareness, understanding, and respect. The H community is currently composed of Native Americans from 72 different tribes. Many Native Americans migrate between urban centers and reservations, and H serves as a home base for many Native people who find themselves in the city. So I'll include a link to H in the show notes, but please move some money to them or find a local resource in your own area as well. And in the complete opposite direction, my jeers this week is to Canadian oil giant Enbridge Energy, which is trying to build the massive Line 3 pipeline. So probably a lot of us have heard of the Dakota Access Pipeline, and um, some it was really big in the news a couple of years ago. Guess what? It's still a problem, and so is this. Um, so the Line 3 pipeline expansion would span northern Minnesota uh, and violate several treaties with the Anish Anishinaabe people and would cross 200 bodies of water, including the Mississippi River, twice. So if it's built, Line 3 would carry hundreds of thousands of barrels a day of tar sands crude oil, which is some of the dirtiest oil in the world, from Alberta, Canada to Superior, Wisconsin, and it would contribute the equivalent of 50 coal plants worth of pollution into the atmosphere. Opponents are calling on people to write to leaders, including President Biden and the head of the Army Corps of Engineers, to stop Line 3. You can divest in banks and investments that back the Dakota Access Pipeline and the Tar Sands Pipeline expansions. Uh, organize and support the organization Honor the Earth, uh, which creates indigenous-led advocacy, education, and litigation to stop Line 3. Uh, so if you want to learn more, please visit stopline3.org and honortheearth.org. And we'll include links to both of those websites in the show notes. So that is what I've got. I'm pretty fired up and pretty angry. 
What about you, Drea? That is way more intellectual and woke than what I have to offer. This cheers and jeers around. Um, but well, I let do- me just say it's my payment for my white privilege. Fair, fair, fair. I mean, I've got some good stuff, though. So I know we talked about this um, on a previous episode, but I really want to highlight it again today. Uh, First Cheers goes to Indigenous Chumash winemaker Tara Gomez. She was just named Vine Pears Winemaker of the Year for her work with both Keto Wines and the label she shares with her wife, Kameens to Dreams. Um, I love both of those wineries. I think the products are incredible. They are made with so much finesse. They are made sustainably and they're just really beautiful wines. And I think that they're doing great things um, at those two locations. So if you want to support indigenous grown wines, and if you want to support wines that are very conscious about sustainability and the land, especially those coming from here in California, which has been through so much with climate change. Definitely look up Kita and Kameens to Dreams. Um, Both of them ship direct to consumers. Uh, Kita can also uh, be found at quite a few um, wine bars, higher end wine bars here in California. And I think I saw some the last time I was in New York too. So definitely check them out. Uh, my other cheers goes to Mexican food, um, because one, it's delicious. And two, you know, this bitch is not eating turkey on a certain Thursday in November. So there we have it. Uh, for cheers. I also have two because I just couldn't help myself. So my first jeers is to all of my electronic devices. They need to fuck right off right now because every time I open a single one of them reminds me that it has been two years since I have been in Spain. It has officially been two fucking years since I've been in my happy place. And, you know... Every time I look at my iPhone, every time I'm on social media, they're like, oh, on this day, two years ago, five years ago, six years ago, because getting out of this country used to be my escape from uh, Colonial Fantasy Day. So uh, that's been super annoying to, you know, kind of see all of that. And so not only am I perpetually tired and cranky because work has been insane, but now I also just like sit here and cry a lot, too. It's real fun. So that's Jeers 1. Jeers 2, Black Friday. Black Friday. It's that special time of year when someone gets killed via trampoline while they're trying to buy a shotgun on sale at Walmart or the Bass Store, wherever the fuck people go and wait in a tent at 3 a.m. and pee in an alleyway. I don't know. I just hate it. I hate it. It's so awful. Like, I hate the commercials. I hate the flyers that come in the mail. I hate the coupons. I hate the people. I hate the commodification of joy. I hate how anti, like, Charlie Brown it is. I just, I hate it. I hate it. So, if you take anything away from this episode, although I do think you're going to take a lot away from this episode, um, take this. If you're going to shop for the holidays, shop small. Support small, support local, support independent businesses and artists. Um, Put a face behind what you buy and keep the money in your communities. Walmart, Target, Amazon, they don't fucking need it. They do not need it. Um, Put the money a place where you're going to see it build your community. 
uh, even further. So that's one of many soapboxes for this very special holiday-themed episode. Cheers! <laughs> and if you happen to be listening to this podcast while you are in your car on the way to the mall for some Black Friday sales, just feel free to turn around now. Also, if you're listening to this while you're angrily making some turkey stuffing bullshit for relatives that you may not want to talk to, just drink more wine. That's what we're here for. <laughs> yeah, and I'm just going to go ahead and say you have our permission to spit in it. Uh, I mean, I I'll, oh, I was going to be like, don't give them the wine. Like, keep the wine for you. Oh, no, I meant spit in the turkey. Oh, yeah, whatever. Yeah, fine. Do what you need to do to that turkey. doesn't matter. So continuing in the never-ending cycle of anger, uh, let's move on to our shenanigans segment. So I am very excited about this segment. This may be my favorite thing we do this episode. I decided that for this time of year, we should really get into the spirit of the holiday. And for our shenanigans, we could share Thanksgiving myths and legends, and a little bit about their origins and misconceptions, aka some colonial bullshit for all of you. So this episode, we're both going to share some truly fucked up realities about this truly fucked up made up holiday because tis the season, everyone. Enjoy. So the first myth number one is I think that, you know, Thanksgiving is all about the pilgrims, the Indians, the cornucopia of sharing and caring. But at its core is this really interesting mythology that rewrites history in a sense, right? Um, where we get the sense that America, quote unquote, as we know it, is something that is started and propagated by English settlers. Wrong! Like, this is absolutely not true, right? You had the Spanish, you have the, Port uh, the Portuguese, you have Dutch, you have Russians, you have French. You have a ton of different Europeans who are traveling um, to the quote-unquote New World during this time. We're not even going to get into how, the like... The fucking fuck Vikings! Yeah, the fucking... Well, I've got my own, like, situation with that whole bullshit. Like, that's just a step too close to fucking ancient aliens for me. So... Regardless, though, you know, the, the story of colonialism in the Americas, right, plural, is really one that begins with the Spanish conquistadors and the completely horrific and violent things that happened during those initial years of contact. Uh, and as someone who is, you know... Mexican, Spanish, and indigenous, like, this pisses me off so much because this, like, pilgrim Indian mythology literally erases, like, all sides of my heritage, right? And so the, the arrival of the Mayflower is seen, culturally seen, as some kind of, like, first contact episode nonsense, and it's not. Um, in fact, the Wampanoags, so the indigenous group that was, is in that area of the Mayflower had a century of contact with Europeans prior 
to the, the settlement at Plymouth. And what we often don't hear about is like that contact wasn't great, right? It was violent. It was bloody. It involved slave raiding by European settlers. And it also, though, gave uh, the Wampanoags quite, quite a bit of experience in dealing with European settlers. This wasn't their first rodeo by any means with this nonsense. So at the time of the arrival of the Mayflower, there are at least two known Wampanoags who spoke English um, and, a num and had already been to Europe and back. They knew, in fact, the very organizers of the Pilgrim's Venture to Plymouth. So there's already a lot of cross-dialogue and cross-engagement going on um, versus the story we get of, you know, these pilgrims crossing the ocean and landing in Plymouth and making friends and all this fucking garbage nonsense. So I think that's the first thing is the quote-unquote heritage that this fake holiday is built on is a complete mythology. So that's my great history lesson for today. All right, what you got yeah, for us? <laughs> so I've got a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of a, this is like the one cheery moment of the episode because it's also the one moment that we are not talking about colonial settlers. Uh, so I wanted to tell you the story of the cornucopia. So the cornucopia is a, you know, big symbol of Thanksgiving. You see it everywhere. There's, you know, all kinds of Michael's crafts and dinner table decorations that are based on the cornucopia. Um, but it's really, its origins date much further back than, um, than America and the thanks and the Thanksgiving myth, as you can probably expect. So the cornucopia was a symbol of abundance and nourishment in Greek and Roman antiquity. And it was commonly a large horn shaped container overflowing with produce, flowers, or nuts, very vegan friendly baskets of this shape were traditionally used in Western Asia and Europe to hold and carry newly harvest food products. Uh, the horn shaped basket would be worn on the back or slung around the waist, leaving the harvester's hands free for picking. So it's like an early backpack. Ancient Greeks had several myths about the origin of the cornucopia. In one of the most famous ones, Zeus's mother hid him from his devouring father, the Titan Cronus, in a cave on Mount Ida on the island of Crete. In the cave, baby Zeus was cared for and protected by divine attendants, including the goat Amalathea, who fed him with her milk. In one story, Zeus accidentally broke one of her horns with his godly strength, and then the horn had the divine power to provide unending nourishment, just like Amalathea had done for Zeus. In another myth, the cornucopia was created when Zeus's heroic and human son, Hercules, wrestled with the river god Achilles and ripped off one of his horns. The cornucopia has also been associated with several Greek and Roman deities, especially those associated with the harvest, prosperity, or spiritual abundance, like Gaia, Demeter, the goddess Fortuna, and the Roman goddess personification of abundance, Abundantia, and Anona, who is the goddess of the grain supply to the city of Rome, which feels a little specific for a goddess, not gonna lie. Uh... Andrea's favorite god, Hades, the classical ruler of the underworld, was also seen as a giver of ag agricultural, mineral, and spiritual wealth, and in art, 
is often portrayed holding a cornucopia. So next time you see it, just think of your favorite Disney villain. You know, I'm trying to remember if Hades, the character Hades in the Disney animated classic Hercules ever has a cornucopia in any of the scenes. I don't think that he does, but I'm just going to go ahead and say that Disney doesn't have a really great track record with accuracy in uh, Thanksgiving legends and myths, a.k.a. Pocahontas. So I'm not surprised that they left that out, too. Fair. That's fair. All right. So take us back. What what is our next myth? Okay. well, um, that was lovely. And thank you. And you're right. That probably was the one bright, shiny, fun spot. Um, of this episode before we really start drinking. Uh, So myth number three, moving right along. The myth of being a gluttonous asshole is a rite of passage on Thanksgiving. So what does everyone like about Thanksgiving? The food, right? The fact that you literally start eating in the middle of the day and it's just a full-on free-for-all. So here's the real tea on being a gluttonous asshole at Thanksgiving. So for quite a long time, English people had actually been celebrating uh, a form of Thanksgiving that didn't involve feasting. It actually involved fasting, the opposite of feasting. And the whole point was it was supposed to be in prayer and supplication to God. So the fasting had a religious connection to it. Um, In 1769, a group of pilgrim descendants who lived in Plymouth felt like their cultural authority, though, was slipping away as New England became less and less relevant um, within the colonies and the early republic. So Plymouth really, uh, from a very early period, was invested in this kind of mythos and ethos of place that they had established there um, as part of the early uh, British Republic, anyways, in what is now the United States. And so one of the ways they thought to sort of combat this and to sort of keep their cultural authority and cultural footing um, was to sort of boost up the town and boost, you know, early tourism, kind of make it more attractive to visitors and settlers. So they started to plant the seeds of this idea that the pilgrims were, in fact, the founding fathers of America, right? And, you know, this myth-making was also impacted by the racial politics of the late, of, of that period and then later. So the Indian Wars, for example, are raging, and then when they come to the close, it's sort of this opportune time to have Indigenous people included in this national founding myth, right? Um, and so, as I mentioned with the first myth, uh, the Wampanoags were already used to these colonial discourses. They had already um, experienced things like warfare, like disease, trade, all of those things had already hit the tribal communities in this area. But because Indigenous people were, in fact, Indigenous to this land, like everything else, they became part of the origin story of what we think of as America, right? And we see this not just in the early Thanksgiving myth, um, but we see it in 
you know, the revolution. So like the Boston Tea Party, right? And um, people, Freedom Fires really dressing up as indigenous folks and claiming this heritage of this new land. We see it during the era of expansion and manifest destiny and the movement westward and this idea of the vanishing American, right? Um, who was the indigenous American, in fact. So this is not something that ever ends once it gets started. But in attempt to really sort of bolster this creation myth, one of the things that Plymouth started doing was advertising these feasts around this time of the year. So it became much more celebratory and much more... Um, engaging, especially for like local businesses, taverns, uh, grocers, farmers, things like that. And so this was actually, Thanksgiving used to be a fasting holiday and not a feasting holiday. So put the pie down. You can have pie any other day. You really can't have pie any other day. That's true. And you should, you shouldn't deprive yourself of that. So the next myth is that Thanksgiving is about giving thanks. Just kidding. Thanksgiving is about winning wars. Now we're talking. <laughs> if you are not, you know, if you're one of those people who you're like, oh, Thanksgiving for me isn't really about the food. It's not about the gluttony. I just want an opportunity to, you know, express my gratitude and give thanks for what I have. And this is the day that we do that. Eh, wrong. That's not how it started. And that's not what it means. So the first official US government celebration of Thanksgiving was actually a proclamation that George Washington called for uh, in 1789 to celebrate the end of the Revolutionary War and the ratification of the US Constitution. Celebration of war it had nothing to do with like, oh, we're gonna give thanks, except that like, we're gonna give thanks that we beat the British. John Adams and James Madison issued similar proclamations, but Thomas Jefferson felt that the religious connotations uh, of the celebration were out of place in a nation founded on separation of church and state. And despite what everyone seems to think, that's still a thing today. So just, again, keep that in mind. So there were no more Thanksgivings that were officially called for until the Civil War. And during the Civil War, Confederate President Jefferson Davis issued Thanksgiving Day proclamations following several Southern victories, and actual President Abraham Lincoln called for a day of Thanksgiving in April uh, 1862 following Union victories at Fort Donelson, Fort Henry, and at Shiloh, and in the summer of 1863 after the Battle, Battle of Gettysburg. So again, this is all about celebrating victories in war. Lincoln issued an official proclamation fixing the observance of Thanksgiving on the final Thursday in November, hoping that the celebration would help, quote, heal the wounds of the nation. Again, not about, like, the founding of our country, except in the sense that, like, addressing racism in the Civil War is a really founding event of our country. But, huh, funny how that never seems to come up around the Thanksgiving table. Or the in Macy's balloon parade. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let me see a Macy's float with that theme. <laughs> 
But in 1939, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt decided that he was going to move Thanksgiving up a week in an effort to extend the already important shopping period before Christmas and spur economic activity during the Great Depression. So again, it's about war and it's about spending money. So this caused a whole kerfluffle and several states, you know, went along with what FDR wanted. 16 states refused to honor the calendar shift and the country was faced with dueling Thanksgivings. Oh, the horror. What would happen to the healing of the wounds of a nation? So faced with increasing opposition, Roosevelt reversed course two years later, and finally in 1941, Congress had to pass a resolution returning the holiday to the fourth Thursday of November. So again, Thanksgiving has always been about political expediency, not about actual gratitude, and you can give it up without too much heartache. Okay, this is me getting off my soapbox. Andrea, what's our next myth? That is... That is pretty gnarly. I actually did not know any of that, but it further supports my hypothesis that this is a completely made-up holiday. Also, I like I love being grateful. I love showing gratitude. I think those things are so important. Do them every day. How about that? It doesn't need to be just one day. Do them every day. Be grateful every day. Try it. It's kind of rad. All right. Okay. Like Thanksgiving is a more made up holiday than Valentine's Day. Everyone gives Valentine's Day shit, but Thanksgiving is legitimately more made up. There was at least a saint, you know? There you go. I don't hear a saint turkey anywhere. All right. Okay. Speaking of turkeys, this brings me to myth five, which may be my favorite Thanksgiving story. I love this story so much. So the myth is turkeys are seen as the token symbol of Thanksgiving, right? They grace tables across the country in full roasted glory. Every year, a turkey gets pardoned at the White House. Uh, One of the best Thanksgiving episodes of Bob's Burgers featured them returning a turkey to its heritage farm. Turkeys are seen as a symbol of the season. Well, some of you may not know this, but uh, while I was working on my master's, one of the one of my areas of specialization was early American literature. And in one of my graduate seminars, we read William Bradford's On Plymouth Plantation, which, guess what, is all about the early days of Plymouth Plantation, including a story of the first Thanksgiving feast. They eat goose or grouse or whatever the fuck they call it then. There's some duck there. I think there's pheasant running around, probably a couple quail. Nowhere in this chapter about the first Thanksgiving do they mention turkey. Coincidentally, they also don't mention inviting their indigenous neighbors to break corn or pull a wishbone um, at the event either. But, well, we've already sort of seen that that's a, a trend. In fact, a turkey only makes a single appearance in William Bradford's on Plymouth Plantation. It's at the very end of the collection when Bradford's recounting the story of a man who gets excommunicated and 
the reason he gets excommunicated is because he is engaged in a large amount of bestiality with quite a few of the animals on the plantation. And Bradford proceeds to list out the animals. It's quite lengthy. But at the very end of that list, he writes, and one turkey. Oh, damn. So, there you have it. The true meaning of Thanksgiving, or as we like to call it, getting stuffed. So, despite all these, um, you know, fun mythologies, I think that, to be quite serious for a moment here, this is a good time of the year to reflect. Um, to, I think to reflect on more than just sort of our personal uh, feelings and our personal forms of gratitude, but really to reflect on where we are as a society, where we are as a nation, where we are as a global community, and to really think of ways that we can pay it forward that are responsible and um, engaging and promote the notion of world citizenship in ways that we don't always think about. And I know you have some great advice for folks who are thinking about how they can do that. Yeah, I think I have heard many people, let's say what, say what it is, many white people say that Thanksgiving is one of their favorite holidays. It's an opportunity to reflect on what they're grateful for, which can feel like a really nice alternative to the massive consumerism that we're all about to engage in in the holiday season. Um, but to those folks, and this is a process that I have been going on, going through over the last few years as well, I would encourage you to think about why a celebration of gratitude has to be on this particular day, which for many indigenous people stands for a history of genocide and erasure. Um, for my white friends, what would it look like or mean to reflect on that history and to choose another day? Hell, make it a regular practice to remember what you have to be grateful for in a way that doesn't involve the wholesale destruction of a civilization. What might that look like? You can pause the recording here and reflect on it if you want. We'll still be here drinking our wine when you come back. Um, okay, should we get into the fun part now? <laughs> <laughs> I, girl, I think I need a fucking drink. What are we drinking today? So we decided to go with something um, completely different from what we've done previously today. And uh, I think the easy thing would have been for us to do another Kita wine. We also looked at um, a wine produced in conjunction uh, with one of the Pueblos in New Mexico from Gray. But we went with um, a wine from Henry of Phelan which is outside of Ontario, Canada. So our neighbors to the north. Uh, and it is a Baco Noir from 2019. So this wine is around 20 bucks, retails around 20 bucks, ABV of 13.5. And we selected this one for a couple reasons. One, we haven't done a Canadian wine, so why not? Two, 
Yeah, I think that part of this other mythology um, that we've been talking about that, that revolves around the creation of this idea of America is that America is a singular place and that America is always identified by default as the United States. When in fact, America, it relates to two continents, right, that have drastically different um, cultures and philosophies and uh, culinary experiences and wine experiences. And so this is still a North American wine. Um, it is a product of indigenous North American grapes, but it does come from Canada, which has a very different wine growing tradition um, than what we we have in the United States. So I think it is cool a cool gesture to highlight um, an indigenous grape to North America that also challenges the way we think about um, nation and geography. It's also got some cool things going on for it that we love on this podcast. So um, all the the wine we're drinking today and all the wines that this winery, uh, this winery produces are made from fruit that are grown on their estate vineyards. So that means when it's something's estate, that means that they own the winemaker owns the vineyard. They're not buying any grapes. They are har growing and harvesting all their grapes for their wine themselves. Uh, this is a red wine that is fermented in stainless steel tanks with full maceration. So it's going to have that bold juiciness and is aged in American oak barrels for six to eight months with just about 24% new oak uh, and the rest is neutral. So you're not, it's, it's not going to be overpowering the way, um, like a Napa red, like uh, a Zin or a Cab is going to be, there's going to be a little bit more of a finesse there. But let's talk a little bit about the varietal because that's the thing that really drew me um, to this wine when we were deciding what to, what to uh, pair with today's episode. So this is a Baco Noir. And Baco Noir is a hybrid grape, which was created in southwestern France in 1894 by a botanist by the name of Francois Vaco. And what he did was he bred the strain of these grapes by crossing a Vitis vinifera vine, or Folie Blanche, with a Vitis riparia vine, which is a North American species. Um, and so why do this, right? Well, a couple of episodes ago when we actually, no, last episode. Last episode, you mentioned it, but we've mentioned it a few times on this right. podcast. Yeah. So why do this? And the, the reason a hybrid like this exists is because of the phylo phylloxera infestation, which decimated the European wine industry. So uh, remember, phylloxera is like a parasite that eats away at the vines and destroys them. So last time we talked about it, we talked about how a lot of European winemakers had to graft new vines using American rootstocks. So almost everything that you find in Europe now is some form of hybrid. But what's interesting is this, because remember, 
the U.S. has been growing, was now the U.S. anyways, has been growing vines for a long time. The first vines were brought over with Spanish missionaries. And so places like California and Mexico have a long history of wine growing. And then, of course, when the French came, they were also trying to grow wines in the regions where they were. So places like the Great Lakes and then down, of course, into the south. Um, but when phylloxera hits Europe, they need to find the answer. So it's grafting, and most places chose to use varietals that they were familiar with. But in this case, Baco picked a grape that was indigenous to the North American continent um, and, and definitely has different characteristics than some of your classic European grape varietals. Um, so the, the Bacanora was bred to be phylloxera resistant and easy to grow in cool climates. So today you mostly find Bacanora in cooler wine growing regions of North America and in particular the Ontario area of Canada, New York, and there are a couple who produce it out in Oregon. If you want to know more about, we'll not get into phylloxera too much in this episode, but if you want to know more about it, Drea does talk about it in our most recent episode, Wet Rocks, and then in our earlier episode on our favorite everyday kava. It plays a big, big role in the story of that family. Um, so those are two episodes to check out if you want to learn more about the history of phylloxera. Absolutely. And for this wine, all you need to know is the reason it was grafted onto this indigenous North American grape is for purposes of becoming phylloxera resistant. Um, and so they start, you know, growing it around the late 19th century, but it doesn't really gain traction until much later on. So in 1951, uh, the variety was brought to the cooler climate viticulture regions of North America. So it's really just like hanging out in Spain, someone's science experiment, they're growing some vines, making some grapes, and then it comes back. It travels back to um, these regions such as British Columbia, Ontario, Nova Scotia, New York, Michigan, and even Mississippi, like the upper, upper Mississippi, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Oregon. Um, so Baco Noir uh, was also, though, not super popular. Like it's, and most people have probably not heard about it. I mean, when we were doing research on bottles for this episode, I hadn't heard about it. Um, and I read, you know, a number of articles about kind of indigenous North American grapes. And this, this was, quite frankly, one of the ones we could get, right? Um, but... It, it isn't a very well-known grape, and that's partly because Baco Noir was the target of a quote-unquote vine pool program in Canada in the early 1980s. And so these were, these vines were actually targeted to come up, that instead of harvesting them, that was land that they could use to grow different varietals, do other things. Canada's really known for its ice wines, um, its dessert wines. Those cooler climate wines grow really well up there. And so, you know, they're trying to clear land for more of those types of grapes and less of these, which aren't as recognizable or aren't as big of sellers. Um, so 
So there were very, very few older heritage plots of Baco Noir uh, in left, left in Canada. And today, a number of vineyards are participating in heritage programs to try and bring them back. Um, but this particular winery has been growing it for quite some time. In terms of the general characteristics of this wine, um, they, Baco Noir wines tend to be light to medium bodied, fairly fresh, fruit forward, a good acidity, and a lot of folks describe them as an alternative to Pinot Noir that's a bit easier to grow. So the grape isn't quite as finicky as a Pinot Noir, um, but it's also, you know, with the aging process, it has, because it's a little bit of a stronger grape, you can get some darker, oakier, oakier excuse me, versions of it that have more like rustic woodland type notes to them. So it's actually a really versatile grape. And if you're drinking you know, Canadian reds, chances are you're going to find it in a blend up there. Um, and the interesting, the most interesting flavor descriptor I found of a Baco Noir is they're described sometimes as foxy. And uh, I think, you know, the way that reads is you definitely get that woodsy, earthy undertone in these wines, which does make them pretty distinct from a Pinot. So Pinot Noir, you might get some really nice um, minerality. We had that great carbonic from Story of Soil that we drank a couple episodes back. But here, um, you're going to get more of that earth forest floor type um, flavor profile. It's a really intriguing description, Foxy. Foxy. I like it. I like it. So what can you tell me maybe more specifically about where this wine, this Baco Noir comes from? Sure. So this comes from uh, Ontario, Canada, that area. And the vineyard is a 300 acre vineyard that is located in the Short Hills Bench sub Appalachian of the Niagara Peninsula. So many of the wines in the Niagara Peninsula lie on the same latitude as a lot of major wine regions in France. Everyone thinks that once you get up into the upper areas of North America, it's really difficult to grow when in fact, they're on the same latitude lines, but the climates are different, right? So um, the Short Hills Bench subappellation is again, really gonna be great for those cooler climate varietals. Um, and Baco Noir is one of those. It's in the most easterly of the sub-Appalachians located within the Niagara area. And it encompasses um, the land that rises up from the plains of the peninsula, south region to um, the, what's called 12 Mile Creek and 15 Mile Creek. And so it is an area that has a lot of different geographical formations in terms of hills and valleys. And so what you get is long, gentle slopes with excellent drainage and good sun exposure, which is one of those reasons that they have really optimal growing conditions is because they still get that sun exposure so that these grapes can really ripen um, right before harvest. So warm, sunny, sunny days, cool nights are characteristic of this area. Um, 
And the grapes tend to develop nice, intense flavors because of that temperature swing and the complex soils that are in this particular subappellation. The other thing that I really appreciated about um, this winery, about Henry of Fellum, was that they are very much committed to sustainability. And that's something that's been really important to us on the podcast. And um, it just turned out that we were talking a lot about those issues today as well. But, you know, I think that they're really trying to do stuff in a way that is responsible and respectful of the terroir up there. So in 2006, um, they actually became the first vineyard to be certified in that area as local and sustainable. They have followed sustainable winemaking Ontario's world-leading standards in their farming practices since 2004. And in 2017, they became one of only six wineries in Ontario to be certified by the Wine, Wine Council of Ontario as following sustainable winemaking practices from vine to table. And that is really reflected in their winemaking philosophy. So um, Daniel Speck, current owner, says real sustainability is never done. It's an ongoing process of improvement where we find and apply the best new practices, never being afraid to break with the past. And I love that sentiment because it really reflects the notion that in order to be a sustainable, responsible, and innovative winemaker, continue to be relevant, you really have to listen to and interpret what that terroir is giving you. I mean, we've talked a lot on the podcast about how different wine regions are coping with drought, with fires, with smoke taint. And, you know, the, the regions up in Canada are no different. They're also dealing with these things. And so winemaking may not look the same that it did five years ago or 10 years ago. And I think this notion of, you know, breaking of tradition to build a sustainable future is a really powerful one. So they participate in everything from wetland restoration and biofiltration to reforestation, water conservation practices, um, and to really make sure that they are seeing the vineyard as a sustainable ecosystem of plants, insects, animals, people, um, including the winemakers, right, that can continue to grow and thrive on that land. Um, and I just think that that's a great approach to winemaking. Yeah, I think it's really aligned with, you know, our values on this podcast. I know we've already gotten into some pretty deep history in our shenanigans, but it sounds like this winemaker also has some pretty deep history. Uh, what can you tell me about that? Yeah, this is kind of crazy. And this was a complete surprise when I was doing research um, on this vineyard and winemaker. So um, the story of the vineyard and the winery really starts in 1778. And so Nicholas Smith, 
who's like the great, 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 great grandfather, um, was a United Empire loyalist. And he joined the Butler's Rangers and served as a bugle boy and translator because he was part Iroquois during the American Revolution. Now, this is important because in 1794, Nicholas was awarded uh, the deed to the land where the winery now is located, thanks to his service during the revolutionary period. Um, and over the years, he purchased additional parcels to add to the farms. In 1842, Henry, who the winery is named for, and was also Nicholas's youngest son, builds an inn, tavern, and carriage house on the property. And he signs the tavern's liquor license, Henry of Fellum, as a joking reference to the past British Prime Minister, Sir Henry Fellum. And the name sticks. So that's why today, that's the name of the winery. Um, at this time, he also plants some of Canada's very first vineyards. Um, so these are really, in a sense, heritage vines in Canada. In uh, 1982, so then we kind of move, you know, fast forward. 1982, Paul Speck Sr. and Bobby Speck purchased several um, parcels of the original family farm. And in 1984, they have put their three boys to work hand planting Riesling and Chardonnay vines. At the time, Paul Jr., who was only 17, Matthew was 14, and Daniel was 10. And these are the brothers that will eventually run the vineyard. Um, and, you know, they, they really grew up there and tended the vines and worked the farm, you know, during harvest and during the summers and all of that. In 1988, um, Henry Film produces its first vintage and the winery actually helps found the Vinters Quality Alliance with a handful of other Niagara wineries to really oversee winemaking practices in that sub-appellation. Um, in 1993, Paul Sr. passes away, and Paul Jr., Matthew, and Daniel become the winery's owners and really take up the mantle. And since then, they've really dedicated to making these, you know, very sustainably um, farmed wines and growing the business. What a great story. So, yeah, it's kind of a wild family story, but it's super, I mean, it's super cool. Like the American Revolution part, I was like, oh, well then. Well, it's also like this is probably one of the oldest wineries in in the in North America. Yeah. Like going back as far as that, not including the Spanish mission. Right. Um, but it's interesting too, because the original, um, so the tasting room, the original tasting room was actually the Henry carriage house that was built in the late 1900s. So that's, kind of crazy too you know the borders to canada are open now i'm feeling a field trip coming on well i feel like um we've definitely got to get up to the finger lakes and then it's just like a hop skip jump right there we go road, road trip. trip i'm here for it uh the spring it's gonna be glorious all right should we start tasting i mean i already have a little bit but sure <laughs> well those shenanigans i know i just I, I couldn't wait i'm sorry <laughs> 
but it's, it's allowing me to formulate my thoughts. I'm formulating my thoughts. All right. So yeah, let's, um, crack this baby open or pretend like we're cracking it open for the first time and, uh, give it a holler. And, you know, one of the things I want to point out is this is another screw cap bottle. And again, I just want to reinforce, do not be scared off because it doesn't have a cork. A lot of wineries in younger wine growing regions, um, places like New Zealand, um, if you get down to, Ch you know, Chile, uh, I'm trying to think of other ones that we've had, certain ones in like Oregon and Washington, definitely urban wineries. And of course, Canadian wineries are using the screw caps because they're simply more economical and you avoid cork taint. So keep that in mind. It's nothing bad. It's just a different methodology that is in reality more sustainable. One day I'm going to make you do an episode all about corks and the different ways that winemakers have sealed bottles over I mean, the years. that can be a shenanigans segment. I am down. I love shit like that. <laughs> so looking at looking at what's in our glass, um, it's it's dark here in New York already, so my light is not the greatest, and this looks pretty dark to me. What are you seeing? It's a beautiful color. I just pulled open my window, actually, so I could get a better look, and it is almost like a I mean it's almost purple it's like a ruby tinged yeah. with magenta yeah. it's just it's really dark and deep and beautiful it's almost like looking into an amethyst it's I think it's a gorgeous color it's very festive for this time of year as the leaves are changing color and all that nonsense if you don't live in a place like San Diego where it's currently 80 fucking five degrees yeah, it's really beautiful, really dark. Um, you know, I can definitely see it on, you know, a festive table for Christmas, to be clear. <laughs> or New Year's or just, you know, any time you're having a, or just any festive a meal time. to yeah. show your love and gratitude for your family and friends. It's fine. It's all fine. <laughs> but yeah, it's a really beautiful, rich, deep color that perfectly complements fall and winter cozies. What are you getting on the nose? So, you know, earlier we talked about this being um, reading similar to a Pinot Noir. And what's interesting about the nose to me is you get some of those same um, like aromas, but they seem much more intense, if that makes sense. So, I mean, you know, Pinot, like a lot of the, the flavors you get are, you know, it's primarily like red fruit dominant, right? So like cranberry, raspberry, cherry, um, and you get some of the deeper kind of oak spices, like clove and allspice. Um, but Pinot also tends to have like a lot of earth flavor profiles. So things like, you know, leaves, mushroom, truffles, soil, like cocoa. Um, those are oftentimes flavors that are associated with more earth-driven Pinot Noirs. And I get that here um, quite a bit, but they're, it's almost like they're more feral. <laughs> 
we've talked about feral yeast on the show before. Um, you know, they, they have a wilder, maybe less finessed quality to them that, uh, that doesn't make it bad. It, it honestly, to me, it makes it exciting. And so I think, you know, if you were like blind tasting this, for example, it might almost on the nose read like a Zin or a Merlot. But if you really pay attention to those flavor profiles in there, I think they're more closer aligned with a Pinot, just far more intense. So that's all really interesting to, to me because the word that was coming to mind for me when I, when I um, sniffed this was subtle, actually. And not, I mean, I think you've said intense, feral, I, I feel like, and some of this comes from, you know, I think in my first, in our first episode together, I smelled the wine and was like, it smells like alcohol, you know, or one of the early episodes. And this feels much more um, nuanced to me than, than that did. I feel like I'm getting some of those baking spices. Um, cinnamon sort of came to mind for me. It just felt very... Um, it felt like something I could keep sniffing as opposed to something where I'm like, okay, I'm ready to get on to the next thing. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm ready to taste this, but yeah, it, it just all, it felt more subtle to me than some of the other wines we've, we've had or the wines that I've smelled. And it does um, evolve. So even though this is a pretty young wine, you know, it's a 2019, you honestly, if you're drinking this at home, you may want to decant it. Because even as I'm, you know, swirling it here in my glass, that bouquet is evolving quite a bit. So when I first poured out and took a whiff, for example, I was really hit with the fruit. So those, you know, bright red late summer fruits. Um, But now that it's been open for a little bit and, you know, I'm getting some air in there with the swirling, I get a lot more of like kind of that, those wooded leaves and mushrooms and mommy flavor types um, emerging out of the aroma. So I would definitely, even if you don't decant it, kind of let it open up a little bit. Let's sit and open up a little bit for maybe about 30 minutes before you drink it. Yeah. And then you can listen to us. While you wait, open that ball at the start of the podcast. All right, so should we give this a a sip? So the first thing that I notice, several of the episodes that we have, several of the wines we have featured recently on our episodes um, have been reds, and I have described them as having sort of this like tongue tingly sensation, which I think you have described as like the acid. I'm not getting that with this wine and I really appreciate it. Like this feels like velvet pouring over my tongue. Really? So I have the exact opposite uh, interpretation and ladies, gentlemen, non-binary friends, that is why wine tasting is personal and referential because I do get that acid punch. Um, and I, I mean, I like it. I'm into it. Don't get me wrong. But this this definitely seems a little bit more acidic than um, what I would normally 
you know, associate with a red. Well, and maybe maybe acid isn't the right right term, but like whatever we've had in the last couple of bottles, kind of like a dryness. Maybe. I mean, I'm well, I think like the the pre maybe the previous wines because it felt like I had to smack my tongue around, but whatever it is, I'm not getting it on this this glass, which I really like. Fair, fair. Um, but well, and the acidity is for red, it's pretty bright. Like it's almost like a zestiness to it. Um, and so I would just like a lemon pepper, you know how you can buy those fancy ass peppers and it's like lemon, lemon peel and peppercorn. It kind of, it gives me sort of that type of feeling a little bit. Yeah. I think the lemoniness is definitely right, which is again, surprising for a red. Mm -hmm. What else are you getting? I'm still getting some of the fruit in sort of the mid-tongue, like a very cranberry vibe. Cranberry, um, blackberry. Yes. Yeah. You get a little bit more of the black fruit on the palate than you do on the nose, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that cranberry is definitely there. And I, so earlier I talked about a lot of people describe this wine as foxy and I definitely get that so tell me what that means for you so for me it's it's so first full disclosure I love foxes I think they're so great and there's one that lives in my neighborhood and I love it when I like catch her out in the wild um but you know think about a fox right like a fox is a low-line like woodland animal um, so they, they're along the f forest floor a lot and they, foxes do have a very distinct aroma that I don't find unpleasant. Um, but there's something again, like wild and feral and, and untamed in th that idea of, of foxiness, I think. And so when we talk about like, for example, um, the natural wine communities, you know, some people talk about like your wines having just like a little bit of barnyard on them. And that's not necessarily bad. Mm -hmm. It's more of a flavor descriptor to talk about like the unfiltered and unrefined nature of the wine. There's a, 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 a yeastiness to them, a feralness to them. I think Foxy is a similar term in that way where if you like, for if for example, if your jam is a very traditional, very delicate Pinot Noir, this wine is probably not going to be for you. Because it is, it, you know, you, in the literature, a lot of wine critics talk about it being, you know, closely related to Pinot. But once it hits your, your palate, it's a completely different experience. This has um, a different energy to it and a different zinginess to it. If that, I know none of these words are making sense in terms of actual like wine tasting, but, um, the terroir really comes through in a way where, uh, you, it's almost like you taste the forest. Like that's what, it, that's what it reminds me of. It reminds me of, you know, sitting outside in a cabin in the mountains surrounded by big trees and damp soil and creepy little mushrooms poking out of the snow. And that's what this wine tastes like to me. 
Yeah, it's got like a muskiness or a mossiness, earthiness feel. Mossiness, earthiness, yeah. I would definitely... It's not musk. I don't want to call it musky because um, it doesn't have... Like, to be clear, it's not like wet dog. It's not like, you know, wet newspaper, any no. of that. That's a completely different... Like, that's cork tank. <laughs> but, but, but imagine a wet forest. Yeah, like right after... And you're drinking this wine. Exactly. Okay, so what would you want to eat with this wine? And I can I can go first because I'm very Oh, excited. okay. D- take it away. <laughs> so I am roasting butternut squash and garlic and onions and um, carrots to make a butternut squash soup later. And it's very, it's like got a curried base. So there'll be coconut milk in it and garam masala and... I am really excited to have another glass of this wine with that soup. I think they're going to play really nicely together. It's to me, that soup is going to be a little spicier. Um, And I know you've, I know we're having like different tasting experiences right now. I feel like the smoothness that I'm getting with this wine is going to pair really nicely with that. So good job, me planning. I I actually think that um, even with like, what I'm getting on my palate, your soup would go well with it. Because remember, there are a couple ways, like tricks with pairing, right? So you can do kind of opposite profiles, or you can do similar profiles. So kind of with that, that zippiness and that foxiness with this wine, like I think a spicy dish would go really well. So I think like a curried soup is going to be delicious. Um, For the carnivores in the house... This is a wine I would really love to experience with a gamier protein. So, um, wild boar, elk, venison, you know, any of those kind of uh, less traditional meats, rabbit even, this is going to pair really, really nicely. Um, And anything that's got like a strong herbal flavor profile so like even if you did like thyme and rosemary roasted eggplant or something it's going to be really really delicious but I would this is a wine that makes me want to step out of my comfort zone a little bit so I would I would go nuts try something new get crazy so we've talked about food what situation are you having this wine yeah I mean, I think we've already described it. I want to be in a cabin with a huge thunderstorm pouring down around me. And I want to sit on the porch and drink a glass of this wine, smelling the air, smelling the forest, smelling the rain as it as it pours down around me. Oh, that sounds lovely. I think this is also like a great wine to drink fireside, too. Mm. Um, Mm. I know this time of year, a lot of folks like to, you know, rent out a cabin in the mountains or in the desert and just sort of take some time out. Um, Everyone's sort of planning their holiday getaways. I think this would be a great wine for some of that quiet, like pre or post holiday madness alone time that you're going to get. So I would highly recommend packing it on your next road trip. It's really delicious. What about a book to go on that road trip? 
I want to read something creepy. Yeah. I want to read something fun and something creepy. Um, and something that reminds me of the forest. And I'm trying to, now that I'm on this like foxy kick, um, I, I want to pick something that relates to that. So I read a book, actually the last time I was in Paso Robles wine country, and it was so fun. Um, I was staying kind of in this remote area, uh, near vineyards and stuff, but it's called scary stories for young foxes. And it is designed for, you know, young readers. I think it won a Newbery Award, to be honest with you. But it is fantastic. It was such a fun book to read. Um, and it's about this, you know, litter of foxes that come of age. And the adventures that they go on. And some of them are, are, are in fact, pretty scary. Um, and so I... Like, it's just such a fun book, and it's all about, you know, creatures living in a forest, and I don't know, I really liked it. So, this would be a fun one for this book. I mean, for this wine. Nice. I, I also felt like a creepy book story would be the way to go. Um, I read a book a couple of years ago called The Grip of It by Jacques Jemeck. Um, and it is about a haunted house and really like a sort of haunted landscape where the house is set in the woods and the woods sort of keep coming closer and closer and closer. And I read it while we were um, staying in Northern California in sort of a rural area and we were surrounded by woods and on the coast. And it was really, it was the perfect time to read it. It was so creepy. So I would definitely recommend that. I have never read um, The Turn of the Screw, what? and that feels like maybe something I would enjoy with this. What? How have you not read this book? just haven't read it. There's a lot of books in the world. Fine. Be that way. Be that way. Um, House of Leaves, if you haven't read it, I think would, would be great. Oh, I just checked my Kindle. I own In the Grip of It, and I bought it in 2018 probably when you told me you liked it so i should definitely read this you should read it yeah what a ugh, definitely so dumb put it put it at the top of yep, your list it's happening okay what are you listening to to accompany this creepy book you're reading if you say taylor swift's re-released red i am going to reach through this microphone and smack you it is not you're welcome i really enjoyed the uh, descriptor Foxy for this wine. And I think I would like to listen to Jimi Hendrix's Foxy Lady. Oh. I think we haven't really talked about it, but this wine is also kind of sexy. It is sexy. very sexy. I agree. What about you? Um, I'm definitely going to listen to some like Ray LaMontagne with, with this because I remember the last time I saw him in, in concert... Well, it's probably like 2016 or something, but I saw him at the Greek Theater in Los Angeles and it was outdoors and it was early November and the fog had sort of come in and it was a nice chilly night and he's got such a sweet, soothing, raspy voice and it's very sexy. 
but you know, there's, there's a mournfulness to a lot of his songs. And so, um, yeah, that's what I'm playing. And who do you want to drink this with? The first person that came to mind was Shirley Jackson. Uh, because we could keep, we could talk about scary books and scary, uh, scary haunted houses. I think she'd be super fun to read it with. Um, Margaret Atwood in the like Canadian vein, I think would be really fun. Um, did you watch The Haunting of Bly Manor? Yes. So Rahul Kohili, Kohili, Kohli, who knows? I'm terrible. Um, who played Owen. I think that he would be super fun to drink this with. And again, kind of like coming from that creepy vibe, being kind of sexy. I think it could be great. Right. So I just went like full sexy, only mildly creepy on my wish list. I want to drink this with Jude Law. I mean, <laughs> fine. I'm just like, yeah, no, this is this is a Jude Law wine. Um, I mean, he's been in some weird shit, right? He was like in that HBO kind of mystery murder uh, miniseries. He was in The Young Pope. He's he's the young Dumbledore, which you know that hoe ain't up to no good. So, yeah, I want to drink this with Jude Law. <laughs> Perfect. He <Perfect>. foxy. <laughs> So we're drinking this wine in a haunted house in a rainstorm with several sexy men. Yes. And Shirley Jackson and Margaret Atwood, who are like constantly rolling their eyes at us. Maybe they go to bed early. (laughs) Maybe I go to bed early. I was like, I think there's a higher probability that you're going to go to bed early. (laughs) It's fine. It's fine. There's no judgment in this haunted house. Oh, also, there are a shit ton of foxes well, good. around outside. <laughs> of course, foxes all over the woods. I love it. I love it. I love this life for us. We're going to live our full fall fantasy. Okay, so again, this wine was Henry of Fellum Baco Noir 2019. Um, it retailed for about... 18 to 20 dollars uh so definitely check it out i honestly think this is one of my favorite wines that we've had on the podcast like i could see this being a regular rotation in our apartment Ooh, i love that send me some <laughs> yeah yeah i have to i couldn't find it here when i first looked so i'm gonna have to like do deeper digging because i really like it We highly encourage you to try this wine. If you try it, if you like it, if you hate it, let us know. You can follow us on Instagram at two girls and a grape pod. That's two T W O girls and a grape pod. You can also tweet at us at two girls and a grape on Twitter, uh, or you can email us at two girls and a grape pod at gmail.com. That's all spelled out like the Instagram. And, you know, if you enjoyed this episode, if you learned something, leave a rating and review. It really helps us out. We really appreciate it. And uh, it lets other people know what you're enjoying. Tell all your friends. So, Dre, what's next for us? I am so excited. So, as we have already discussed, the holidays are, in fact, upon us. And quite frankly, no one's going to get through the end of the year without some much needed holiday cheer. So this December, 
Two Girls in a Grape will be visited by three spirits. We are literally mixing it up for all of you and bringing you three special episodes focusing on spirits and the cocktails that they create. So join us as we venture through the spirits of Christmas past, present, and future and drink ourselves through the remainder of 2021. And until next time. Salud. Salud. Salud.